You're listening to the Autism Weekly Podcast. Each week, we share community voices and bring light to stories that increase awareness, acceptance, equity, access, and inclusion. If you haven't already, subscribe to join the Autism Weekly family. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. This week, we welcome Dr. Jared Brown back to the podcast to talk with us about food selectivity and the impact of sugar. Jared has been featured on multiple episodes of the podcast. We've talked about a variety of topics, including executive functioning, screen time use, social cognition, and theory of mind. Jared's a professor, trainer, and private consultant with extensive experience working with the individuals on the spectrum. We can't wait to learn more about this topic. Jared, welcome to the podcast. Good morning. Thanks for having me back. Well, it's it's our pleasure. And you know what? This is a topic that I find really interesting just because we're coming out of probably one of the highest sugar times, which would be the Halloween period through Thanksgiving, where, you know, sweets continue all the way through the the winter holidays. And I, you know what? It, I think it's probably something that we should be we should be looking at as far as understanding the impact that that might have over this four month period, but let alone the impact that it has just in life in general. Um, I, maybe we can start with just understanding, you know, why this is even a topic and and I guess why it affects all of us first. Yeah, you bet. And you brought up a good point about Halloween, but consider the last handful of years with COVID. There has been a lot of research that has been published the last two and a half years that really point to the fact that COVID-19 and the related stressors, worries, and traumas have actually amplified stress-related eating, obesity, sugar consumption, fast food consumption. And now with the way the economy is with inflation too, we have to consider that as a possible variable. I've been doing a lot of work in this area lately related to excessive sugar consumption within the context of it being truly a threat to our emotional, physical, and cognitive health. I was shocked to learn when I started digging into these topics, how many studies have actually been published on the topic of sugar and sugar-sweetened beverages. Think of excessive sugar consumption as one threat of many to our emotional health. There are all kinds of other things that can impact our emotional health, Alexithymia, I often talk about that, and that's actually a really important topic to consider within the context of autism. When someone has alexithymia, they really struggle with processing emotions, naming emotions, and labeling emotions. And there is some research to point to the fact that folks that deal with an emotional processing and emotional awareness or emotional suppression kinds of deficits may be more likely to turn to stress-related eating. Sleep issues, chronic stress, circadian rhythm misalignment, emotional invalidation, burnout, shame, guilt, all of these things are threats to emotional health. And in my anecdotal experience consulting on cases involving individuals who have neurodevelopmental disorders, a very high percentage of these clients seem to have a kind of problematic relationship with sugar. I hear it all the time from group homes I consult with, from caregivers, and there's actually research research really support the fact that 
people on the autism spectrum may be more likely to have some unusual food relationships and may consume higher levels of sugar compared to people that do not have autism. Now, when we think of like poor health, so we think of emotional health, we think of physical health, poor health, there's all kinds of factors that can exacerbate poor health. Housing instability, homelessness, chronic long-term unemployment, having a very poor diet, even food insecurity. Someone grows up living in a situation where they don't know where they're gonna get their next meal from. Or someone who's living in a, a home, but they just don't have access to good, clean drinking water. They don't have access to just good, high quality food. These are all determinants of poor health, pollution exposure, living a sedentary lifestyle, chronic stress, chronic sleep, obesity. These are all factors that can impact our health. And in some of these cases, at least in my experience, and there is some anecdotal evidence to support the fact that people that are dealing with all of these kinds of life stressors and adversities, in some cases, may use sugar to cope with the stress. And sugar can really wreak havoc on our brain, our body, our guts. And we know that a high percentage of people with autism deal with digestive health issues, deal with sleep issues, and sugar in some cases can just be really fuel on the fire. Jeff, before I get into kind of like sugar sweetened beverages and all the things around that, do, do you have any thoughts or questions or anything I can clarify? I, I think that the one thing that I, I want to kind of put out there and have a, a better understanding of is, you know, this process of us selecting the foods and us choosing different foods within our diet. We live in such a fast paced culture where sitting down to make food probably is not always on the agenda for most families. And some of these foods that you're describing, which um, are easily bought, e easily purchased, microwavable at times, have a ton of sugar in them and they're just hidden. Um, is this is this something that you're seeing, you know, is just part of our culture now and that we have to start changing the way that we approach our, our diet and be more conscious about what we're purchasing? In my opinion, yes. And I, what I'll say today, I always wanna give this disclaimer. I would recommend that before implementing any of the things I'm talking about today, Talk to your healthcare professional, talk to a nutritionist. What I'm sharing today is just kind of general education. But yes, if, if we look at the research just coming out about all these topics, just in the United States, obesity is on the rise, diabetes, sleep issues, all of these factors need to be considered. And maybe your audience has heard of the Western diet. That is a classic diet where it is individuals that have a tendency to probably consume more processed foods, energy dense foods that taste good, but not necessarily good for us. Going to fast food restaurants, if people rely on going to the gas station, drive-throughs, most restaurants in the United States seem to have diets that are really rooted in that Western diet. These are gonna be ultra processed foods, sugar sweetened beverages, ice creams, cakes, donuts, things, again, that taste really good, and they taste good a lot of times because they're loaded with sugars. These things, 
the research is pretty clear. We have a diet that mainly consists of ultra-processed foods that has been linked to having more metabolic problems, more sleep issues, more mental health challenges. Sometimes in this literature, they'll talk about the topic of food addiction. Now, is there such thing as a food addiction? Depending on what study you look at, there, there's some controversy with that, but there are foods that seem to have an addictive-like quality to them. So sugar, for example, there's so many people that I know that at least on the surface appear to have some sort of addictive tendency to sugar. I have friends, I have family members that indicate that anytime they try to get off sugar, they seem to have many withdrawals, they get headaches, it seems to increase their irritability. So it's very difficult to know if this applies to everyone, but at least anecdotally, I, I do see that with people that seem to have diets that consist of kind of the Western diet, all of these processed foods and just folks that eat high levels of sugar. So Jared, on, on that on that topic, I mean, I, it, it's almost like a chicken and an egg for me. It's so we're giving our children oftentimes these processed foods because they they taste better. We know that they're going to eat them. And now you have that addictive nature. Is there something specific? Because a lot of families that that I've worked with historically and a lot of the, the, the clients themselves prefer those those brown foods. And it becomes almost a food selectivity issue from the beginning. Um, so where does sensitivity versus selectivity come into play on the autism spectrum um, from, from your point of view? Well, there are some studies that point to the fact that people with autism may be more likely to consume sugar, sugar-sweetened beverages, other kinds of processed foods, maybe at a higher rate compared to the general population. Now, there's not a lot of studies on that, but there are some. There are some studies, too, that aren't necessarily autism-related that talk about what was going on during the prenatal period. So prenatal excessive sugar consumption, prenatal sugar-sweetened beverage consumption. What factor did that have on that developing child in utero? So we really need to take into account prenatal variables as well. Now, once the child is born into an environment, what happens if there is food insecurity? What happens if there is just lack of resources and the family is really relying on food that is highly processed, that is energy dense, that's cheap, that tastes good, but it's really not good for that child's developing brain? What happens if that child during the first year of life is consuming a lot of sugar sweetened beverages? The research is pretty clear on that. That can have a really negative impact on brain and body development. Affordability obviously comes into play because again, in some cases, eating healthier may be more expensive where maybe the family truly wants to eat healthier, but they don't have enough money to do so. So we need to take into account socioeconomic status. We need to take into account convenience as well. Maybe one or both parents is dealing with an untreated mental health issue. Maybe they are working a lot of hours and they just don't have a lot of time to prepare food. So part of it could be convenience. Availability too. Parental modeling has a lot to do with this. A child who grows up in a home 
and the parents are consistently consuming fast food, drinking sugar-sweetened beverages all the time, what does that modeling do to that child as they get older? What happens if the family lives across the street from a fast food joint or a gas station? There's research to support the fact too that just the general proximity to one of these locations plays a factor. Some other correlates that are discussed in the general excessive sugar consumption literature really relates to maternal education. Maybe the family has lack of education around what constitutes a healthy diet versus an unhealthy diet. I think part of it also has to do with what kind of stress the family's going through. If your audience is familiar with the adverse childhood experiences research or complex and developmental trauma, there is some research in that literature that points to the fact that people that have dealt with extensive trauma early on in life may be more likely to engage in problematic eating patterns as they get older, which then can contribute to a host of issues as that individual gets older. What happens if parents use food as a reward? So the child deals with a lot of behavioral problems and the parents know that that child really likes to drink soda and they use soda as a reinforcement to get that child to comply with whatever rules they're trying to, to implement. That can be really problematic, especially for someone on the autism spectrum when we're talking about topics like theory of mind, weak central coherence, perseveration, cognitive inflexibility. And there is some evidence in the general literature related to excessive sugar consumption that excessive screen time exposure and if a person lives a sedentary lifestyle, they may be more likely to engage in eating habits that might not be that good for them, which then can continue to contribute to maybe poor health outcomes for that individual. Again, I see there's that, a lot uh, of oh, go ahead. I was gonna say is that I, I actually even see that for myself at times. That you know, when when I am getting away from exercise and things like that, find myself sitting around more, my choice of food changes. The amount that I consume changes, and it's it's an interesting byproduct. But I did want to ask you before we go um, too far into some of the um, techniques and strategies and and how to make some of the adaptations um, within the treatment world right now is that there's really a focus of prioritizing care to that which is. Um, really chosen by the client themselves, but also through a lens of health, safety, empowerment. Um, so through that lens, where does this food sensitivity or increasing a healthier diet or maybe having better choice making when, when choosing the items that we're consuming, where does that fall and how does that affect things like severe behavior, cognitive functioning, and why would you even target these behaviors? Think about that. There is a, I know there's at least one or two studies in the autism world that looked at sugar sweetened beverage consumption and the impact it had on the person with autism. And what that study showed is that excessive sugar sweetened beverage consumption actually negatively impacted executive functioning within that population. We know in general that people with autism are gonna have executive functioning impairments, which is basically the CEO of the brain 
It guides day-to-day behaviors. It plays a critical role in goal planning. In my opinion, if now if someone on the autism spectrum already has executive functioning impairments and they have a diet that is just loaded with processed foods, sugar-sweetened products, sugar-sweetened beverages, it can really just exacerbate the underlying issue there. Now we know the overwhelming majority of people on the autism spectrum also deal with digestive health issues and sleep disturbances. Sugar and excessive sugar-sweetened beverage consumption has also shown to exacerbate digestive health issues, contribute to chronic low-grade inflammation in the body, and just impact sleep. So if we're talking about this through a behavioral lens, if the child or teenager or adult is not sleeping well, is dealing with digestive health issues, more times than not, the person's probably gonna have even more problems with irritability, mood dysregulation, cognitive-based impairments, and then that just continues to exacerbate maybe their inflexibility, their rumination, their limited ability to kind of put the brakes on and pause and reflect, and all of those stressors just put added pressure on that entire family system. So that's kind of how I look at it through that emotional dysregulation lens and really just looking at it through kind of a holistic mind-body approach because these things can not only impact the brain, but also the gut. It can Mm -hmm. impact our inflammation. All of these things are critical for our bodies to work optimally. No, and then that that lens and the way that you're that you're perceiving that I think is probably the most healthy way to be able to look at these issues. Oftentimes, you'll see um, providers of care that just say, you know, all I want to do is increase the the variety of foods that a child takes in. Where, you know, maybe maybe the answer isn't always about increasing just a random variety, but helping for somebody to understand choice and understand what it is that they need to be able to do and for their variety to be their choice, but a healthy one in the process. And I think that that's probably the route to go, but how how do you go about expanding these healthy options? Because it's hard to move away from a diet that tastes super good all the time to one that, you know, it, it tastes a, a, a different palate, I guess I'll say. <laughs> It without a doubt, who doesn't like this kind of food? It tastes great and stuff. But I think really starting with working with a qualified nutritionist, a functional medicine specialist, a qualified healthcare specialist, getting education, learning about these things first and foremost. There's something called health literacy and nutritional literacy, just increasing your knowledge and awareness about your own health and wellness learning how to read labels, understanding what constitutes a gram of sugar, looking at kind of what you're putting in your body and how that can negatively impact your health and wellness. We know that people on the autism spectrum oftentimes deal with food sensitivity issues. So what happens if the individual has a food sensitivity and they don't know about it? That can throw off the gut, that can impact behavioral regulation, working with a nutritionist, maybe getting some testing, ruling out any food sensitivity issues, gluten intolerance, dairy, wheat, sugar, all these things. Getting sleep under control plays a critical role because if we're sleeping better, 
our bodies are typically more regulated. And if we're more regulated, we're in a better position to make more informed decisions. I think looking at what stressors are going on within that family system, uh, tackling stress, learning how to manage stress, joining a support group, looking at other factors that may be negatively impacting health too. Is someone in the house smoking cigarettes or using excessive amounts of caffeine? Are they addicted to the screen and they're on technology for excessive periods of time? These are all threats to our emotional and behavioral health. What happens if someone's living a sedentary lifestyle and then just laying around all the time? That can be very, very problematic to one's own health and wellness. There's a lot of cases I've consulted on where the person is dealing with obstructive sleep apnea. Could someone be dealing with untreated sleep apnea or some sort of untreated pain disorder? We know that people with autism oftentimes deal with alexithymia. About half of people on the autism spectrum deal with alexithymia where they might have a difficult time naming, labeling, processing emotions. And that can amplify stress, that can amplify pain in the body. Maybe the person is dealing with chronic low-grade kind of dehydration where they just don't drink a lot of water. So lots and lots of things we can do. And anything we can do to promote overall general well-being in the client, promoting self-esteem, promoting optimism and gratitude, helping that person develop better self-control, self-regulation, all of these things, if you look at it in the sugar literature, it has been talked about promoting self-regulation. Maybe it's promoting executive functioning capabilities. Even being aware of the topic of metacognition training, that's a fascinating topic. Metacognition is our ability to think about our own thinking and know about our own knowing. It helps us develop more insight and awareness. And these things can help improve decision-making, if we can promote more self-efficacy, all of these things can be very, very helpful. No, and I mean, I, I'm gonna just put it out there is that I appreciate, Jared, the way that you're looking at it through the medical lens versus trying to be able to make it where it's a, uh, societal normative lens. And the, the, the reason I say that is, is that you're looking at what does this food choice do to promote somebody to be able to be their best self, to be physically able to be able to tackle those challenging events within the environment and to be, and to be physically healthy, to be able to live their long best life. Whereas I see oftentimes that people look at things and you mentioned texture, but I I'm under the, the, the auspice that, you know, I can find a healthy diet and avoid a specific texture. And there's nothing wrong with that if I can make sure I'm getting healthy foods into my system. And people will spend two, three years trying to work on texture desensitivity with foods rather than looking at dietary choices and how to be able to look and identify how to be able to make sure I'm putting the right things in my body. When you're looking at coaching and consulting with families, or even when you're trying to look through the literature and understand it a little bit better, how do parents best support their child who they're trying to be able to move away from that heavy sugar-based diet? Again, I hate to keep repeating, consult with the nutrition first, coaching, modeling, teaching, role-playing, knowing that it's a process. 
it probably will take time. Maybe doing it in conjunction with the nutritionist, with a sensory processing specialist, really understanding how that client best learns and understands information because if someone's dealing with like auditory processing issues or information processing or language comprehension deficits, you want to find out these these barriers. If they're dealing with executive functioning impairments, making modifications to the goal plan, the intervention plan is imperative. Using strengths-based approaches, knowing that this population also deals with a high level of abstract thinking deficits. So if the person who's teaching an intervention doesn't realize the client's dealing with abstract reasoning deficits, and if they rely on a bunch of how and why questions, that can be very tricky for someone that has abstract reasoning deficits because connecting the dots, planning, seeing the forest through the trees, seeing the gray in area can be very, very tricky. So making it very concrete making it developmentally appropriate because if maybe you're working with a 15 year old on the autism spectrum but they have a developmental and emotional age of a 10 year old modifying your approach to match their emotional and developmental age is very very helpful i give talks in the topic of neurocounseling here and there and in that world of neurocounseling they talk about therapeutic lifestyle changes as well this isn't necessarily just for people with autism but looking at therapeutic lifestyle changes might be a way to go as well. Those are approaches that promote exercise. So working with a fitness specialist, it promotes diet and nutrition. So working with the nutritionist, helping clients get out in green space and blue space. So basically getting out around nature, being around lakes, going for walks outside, getting fresh air, getting movement, developing healthier relationships, getting people connected to positive recreational support. So it might be a skills group, teaching relaxation and stress management skills, and even volunteering, getting someone connected to a volunteer position. These are all therapeutic lifestyle changes that can be very helpful. And the last thing I'll say too is, interestingly, in another field of study, I don't wanna to go too far in the weeds, another field of study I give talks on is something called psychoneuroimmunology. It's just basically the interconnectedness between psychology, the brain, our immune system, the gut. That has really helped me better understand human illness, disease, and disorders much more effectively. It's kind of a holistic mind-body approach. It's called psychoneuroimmunology. And in that literature, they talk about coping strategies that can be very problematic and can have a negative impact on our immune health. So if a client is dealing with problematic coping strategies, such as a consistent history of denial behavior, or they have a tendency to escape or avoid, or they conceal their emotions, or they repress their emotions, these are all problematic coping strategies that can wreak havoc on the body. So those are some other areas I think you'd wanna check out as well. And helping people move away from those problematic strategies can be another helpful intervention to just increase overall health and wellness.
Certainly. I mean, they call it comfort food for a reason. And as an N of one, everything that you were describing as far as getting out, uh, exploring nature, being able to surround myself with a group of people, having more social opportunity, all of that for me creates better lifestyle health choices to begin with. And the comfort foods seem to go by the wayside for me. Um, so all of that makes a ton of sense. Um, but I, I did want to get just a little bit more information because this topic goes so deep. But I, I did want to get an understanding from you as far as, you know, what what do you see as some of those best tests or the ability? And I, I know that the idea would be to consult your medical professional and get an understanding of it. But there there have to be ways that families can contact some tests to understand, you know, is there something that inherently within my child's uh, processing or, or their biological composition that they're just having a hard time with these foods. And there's a there's a natural sensitivity. Um, is, is there something you'd recommend for that? Well, again, if you if you work with like a functional nutritionist, functional medicine specialist, there's different tests that people can do, maybe like a hormone panel, uh, checking melatonin, cortisol levels, things of that nature ruling out metabolic dysfunction. So going to your doctor and, and having routine checkups, checking on blood sugar levels. There is literature in the autism world that talks about obesity a lot. So if someone's dealing with obesity issues, obviously working with a specialist who understands that. Again, majority of people with autism have digestive health issues and sleep issues. So working with specialists there to find out, is this a real issue? Food sensitivity testing might be warranted in some cases because if a child is dealing with some level of food sensitivity, that can wreak havoc on their gut. And if their gut is off, that can just exacerbate irritability and rumination and problematic behaviors. So people have children that seem to have a lot of emotional dysregulation problems has anyone ever considered, could there be some sort of nutritional deficiency or some sort of food sensitivity or food allergy going on? Possibly, I'm not saying 100% of the cases, but I don't think it hurts to consult with your healthcare provider to rule that out. Looking at the screen time exposure again, this has a lot to do with it, at least in my experience too. If the person is glued to that screen all day long, what impact is that having on their brain health, their sleep health, their gut health? And if they are simultaneously looking at the screen, are they reaching for sugar-sweetened beverages? How does bowling factor into this too? A good percentage of people with autism have a history of being bullied and teased. There is evidence to support the fact in the general bowling literature that people that have dealt with a high level of bowling may have more problematic relationships with food, possibly because they're trying to cope with the stress, trauma, adversity. Again, I keep mentioning the topic of alexithymia. Half of people with autism have alexithymia, but I don't think a lot of people in the autism world have even had training in that topic. Ruling out alexithymia can be a very helpful thing to help that person learn how to name label and process emotion. So these are just a few things to rule out. And, you know, if they have these things, finding a specialist to tackle them. If they don't, at least you ruled it out and they're, then start tackling the other comorbidities that may be exacerbating 
kind of their unusual relationship with food. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a sensory processing issue. So ruling out sensory processing problems as well. And sometimes it might be rooted in an early childhood trauma where maybe a family adopted a younger child and they had a long history of in utero trauma or early childhood trauma as well. So sometimes it could be trauma related where they're using food to cope with trauma, but the child's too young to articulate what's going on. So usually it's multifactorial, a lot of layers going on to this. It's usually not just one factor. Yeah, like like all problems, it seems like there's always many inputs that are leading to it. And and I've seen firsthand where somebody's discomfort has led to severe aggression, severe behaviors, and whether that was a bowel obstruction or whether that was just uh, a food sensitivity where they were just constantly irritated, I've seen it. And and you you tackle that medical problem and you start to see some of the ability to change some of the behavior over time and and create more adaptive ways to be able to communicate what you need and to be able to interact with the world around you. So, um, Jared, I appreciate you coming on it. This topic is so it's so big. And it's uh, I think that the key to walk away with is that you should never not ask the questions. You should always be able to consult. You should find those specialists because it takes a, a community to be able to to integrate treatment around these issues. Um, where can people find some of these additional details concerning dietary preferences, the effects of sugar on the autism community, or I mean, just some of the information that you're that you're able to share with us? Yeah, you bet. I mean, talk to your healthcare provider, of course. You can go to Google Scholar and just type in autism and nutritional deficiencies, sugar sweetened beverages. You'll be able to find a lot of information on that. You want to share my email with folks, I can send different articles that have been published on this topic. And I'm starting to give more and more podcasts on related topics. This is the first time I've talked about it within the context of autism, but I gave a talk related to excessive sugar consumption and its impact on the criminal justice system. I looked at it through the lens of other neurodevelopmental disorders. I've looked at it through the lens of trauma. There's a lot of information out there on these topics. And there's a lot of workbooks out there. They're not necessarily autism specific, but just going online and looking at different workbooks that just talk about sugar, poor eating habits, lots of great resources out there. Well, once again, Jared, thanks for coming on to our podcast and and thanks for challenging us to to kind of broaden our viewpoints and perspectives as it comes to some of the issues that that we need to address when we're treating the whole child or when we're trying to empower somebody to be the best self within the community. So thank you very much. Absolutely. Honored to be here. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.